0: the last week in our nine-week sermon series on the book of Philippians. So if you're here for the first time this this morning, welcome. You've picked a good one. We're on the very last uh, sermon of this sermon series. So yeah, we've been looking through the book of Philippians, Paul's letter to the the church in Philippi. And uh, last week, I began by asking you all a question, which was basically along the lines of, if you felt like you were an anxious person, or if you felt like maybe you suffer from anxiety. And we looked at how uh, the, the the antidote to anxiety is the peace of God. So this week, I, w- I want to ask you a, a related question. And it's the question of, would you, would you describe yourself as, as a content person? Would you look at yourself and say, you know, I feel, I feel pretty content in life. I'm, I'm pretty happy. Or... Maybe you're not content. Maybe when you look deep down, perhaps you're actually quite discontent. Maybe you describe yourself as a discontent person. Perhaps you get irritated at the smallest things and everything sets you off. And you're disgruntled. You ever met somebody who's a basically a, a discontent person? And they just, they always have a bit of a meh about them. Man, they always see the, the negative side of everything. And they rarely smile unless it's somebody else's misfortune. And they just basically have this air of just about them. You know, it's funny, but um, I was a musician for years. I'm still a musician. But um, I found that musicians can be some of the most discontented people in life. And it's because here's, here's what tends to happen if you're a musician, right? When you're in your teen years you're kind of full of optimism. Yeah, yeah, I'm going to be the next rock star. It's going to be amazing. I'm going to be touring. I'm going to have thousands of adoring fans. I'm going to get record deals and just adoration from everybody. And then you get into your 20s and it still hasn't happened. It's like, okay, but I, it's going to happen. I know it's going to happen. You know, I, by, the, by the time I was 25, I had planned that I was going to have a record deal with Blue Note Records. It's one of the top jazz labels in the world. And I was going to be touring the world with my jazz trio making albums, writing music, and it was just going to be amazing. And then you get to your 30s, and it still hasn't happened, and you realize that, unfortunately, 30's kind of old for the music industry, right? you kind of past the mark. And, th- and basically what happens with so many musicians is this bit of disgruntledness sets in as they realize it's not going to happen, and instead they're going to be playing Disco Inferno every night for years to come singing burn baby burn yeah and as I meet musicians in their 40s and 50s you can, you can just tell they've been, they've been on the circuit for years and they're like ah. and they're just very discontent people but you know a lot of people find themselves like that okay and it's often because you know as a youth you have these kind of unrealistic dreams and then as life goes on they don't materialize and you realize they're not going to materialize and this kind of Discontentment can set in if that's where you've placed all your eggs, right? So we're going to be talking about that this morning because Paul really touches on the subject of contentment and when the, where the true source of contentment is found. So he begins in verse 10, as he so often has done in this letter, with what, what's he doing? He's, he's at it again. He's rejoicing. What is it with this Paul fellow? He's always rejoicing. I rejoice. The guy's in prison. He could find out he's going to be executed tomorrow and he's rejoicing again. It's amazing. And essentially what he's doing is he's giving thanks to the church in Philippi because they've sent him some gifts. And this was essential if you were going to survive in prison. You relied on the generosity of your friends to to give you uh, supplies for food and all kinds of things. It's not like prison today. And so he's received these gifts and he points out that I know you've not been able to give to me sooner. But then he wants to, to make sure that they're not hurt by him saying that. And so he goes on in verse 11 and and makes the point of saying, I'm not saying this because I am in need. So in other words, what Paul's saying here is he's saying, I'm not just your friend and I don't consider you to be my friend in the Philippines church because I can get something out of you. This is not some mutually beneficial friendship where you give me something and I give you something and so we can be friends. No, it's, it's a higher form of friendship. It's, it's based on, on real love for one another. And so I, I want to camp here for a moment on this, this idea of friendship. This idea of friendship. Because I think most of us would agree that it's very hard to come across really true friends, isn't it? Let me give you some examples. Have you ever been in a friendship... Perhaps you're in some right now that are, are they're based more on the idea of I'm only really a friend because I can get something from you and you can get something from me. You know, for example, there's, there's a common phrase today, right, of friends with benefits. We're we all familiar with that term, right? Friends with benefits. And, you know, basically, what is it? It's a, it's a mutual friendship. I put the air quotes in there um, based on a mutual sexual desire. And the the only problem with this kind of form of friendship, if we can call it that, is that once one tires or becomes bored of the other, the friendship is over. And inevitably, somebody ends up getting hurt and feeling used. What about friendships that are based on mutual interests, such as sports, right? Maybe you play play a sport together. I have... um, People I train with in my karate club, who I would call friends, but interestingly, outside of karate, the club, we're never really in touch with each other. Our friendship is based about, around our mutual interest in a certain thing. Or perhaps you have friendships based around the fact that you have kids who are the same age. And so you get together for the kids, and the kids hang out, and you become friends with them. But once the kids have grown up, again, the friendship sort of parts ways. Or maybe it's centered around a band, playing music together. Many of you know I was um, a professional musician before I, I took this position as a pastor here. And I played in a lot of bands. But one of the, the bands I was in, I was in for 15 years. And when I took the position here, I had to uh, quit the band because it just wouldn't have been realistic for me to be gigging on the weekends and trying to do this. And ironically, in the six months I've been here, I've probably spoken with a handful of those people, maybe once or twice. And it, even then, it's a text. But because I'm no longer in that certain area, our friendship has, it's not ended. We're still friends, but it's, it's not the same friendship because we're not seeing each other regularly. And so there are, there are different kinds of friendships, aren't there? And I think we'd all agree that a true friend is a rare gem. Aristotle, he identified three kinds of friendship that he called the good, the pleasant, and the useful. That's not the good, the bad, and the ugly, by the way. Although I'm sure we all have good, bad, and ugly friends. But no, Aristotle identified the good, the pleasant, and the useful. And he saw, he saw the good as the best form of friendship. This is the real, genuine type of friendship that is not based on what you can get out of each other, but on the fact that you just enjoy each other. He saw the lowest form of friendship uh, was, was the useful and actually the most common form of friendship that m- most of us have, these kind of friendships, where it's, it's utilitarian in, pers- in purpose. In other words, it's like, hey, you do something for me, I do something for you, we hug at the end of the day, we're old friends, I kiss the cheeks, all right, see you tomorrow. <laughs> it's usually between guys called Frankie and Johnny. But Paul's friendship... It's based on, with the Philippian Philippine church, it's based on something much more real and true. It's based on a sacrificial kind of friendship. So, so what is a real friend? I think a lot of us, when we pause for a second in life, we actually feel a bit of loneliness. And I know this is true of the younger generation because deep down they realize possibly they don't really have any real true friends. Facebook tells me I've got over 500 friends. I barely know a lot of them. Or I knew them when I was 14 in high school. But there's a loneliness when we realize that many of our friendships are quite shallow. And they're not full of the, the, the real substance of true friendship. So what is a true friend, a real friend? Well, the journalist Walter Winchell said, a real friend is one who walks in when the rest of the world walks out. So a real friend will stick with you through thick and thin. No matter what you're going through in your life, they're not going to walk out when the, t- the going gets tough. Mencius, who was a Confucian philosopher, he said, friends are the siblings God never gave us. I kind of like that. Unless, of course, you don't get on with your, your sibling. But you know what? Perhaps one of the best descriptions of what a real friend is and does was highlighted by my man, C.S. Lewis. I know you might be getting sick of my C.S. Lewis quotes by now. But C.S. Lewis, he explains that a true friend will draw out a side of you that only they can. You ever ever had a friend and they bring something out in you that nobody else can bring out in you because of who they are and who you are? Well, C.S. Lewis, he was... He was part of a group called the Inklings. All right? And the Inklings was a group of, of, of uh, literary folks who would get together on a regular basis and they would go to a pub in Oxford and they'd have a p- few pints and discuss the various projects they were working on. And they would critique each other's works. You know? So they'd be like, oh, good grief man, what did you write here? This is an absolutely awful sentence, you're going to have to revise this. It's absolutely ghastly. <laughs> Pass me my pint, thank you. You know, they were usually puffing on a pipe because you could smoke in pubs back then. And there was a great friendship between the Inklings, but three of them were particularly close, and that was C.S. Lewis, you know, the author of the Chronicles of Narnia and all what have you, J.R.R. R. Tolkien, who's the guy who did Lord of the Rings, and then another writer called Charles Williams. And they were very close, the three of them. And when, when Charles Williams, he was the first of the three to, to pass away. And, and when Charles died, uh, C.S. Lewis, he was deeply affected not only by the loss of his friend, but actually how it, it affected his friendship with, with Tolkien. And um, I'm going to read a quote from you as he, he, he sort of spells this out. And he refers to Tolkien in this quote as Ronald. I guess Ronald was the name that C.S. Lewis called Tolkien. Tolkien. But Lewis, he says this, In each of my friends, there is something that only some other friend can fully bring out. By myself, I'm not large enough to call the whole man into activity. I want other lights than my own to show all his facets. Now that Charles is dead, I shall never see again Ronald's reaction to a specifically Charles joke. Far from having more of Ronald, having him to myself, now that Charles is away, I have less of Ronald. Do you see what he's saying there? He's saying now that Charles is gone, that there's a side of Tolkien that I'll never see anymore because only Charles could bring out that in him. And so in a sense, his friendship was diminished a little bit with Tolkien because he'd lost a part of Tolkien when Charles went. And that's what a true friend does. They bring something out in you, a good, <laughs> a good aspect of you, that nobody else can. And they love you for it, just because of who you are, not because of what you can do for them. And so just like there was a strong bond between uh, Lewis Tolkien and, and Charles Williams, so there was a real bond between Paul and this church in Philippi. There was a real bond. This wasn't just, you know, general formalities. Hey, how are you? Great to see you this morning. So Paul continues and he tells them that while he's thankful for their gifts, he doesn't need their gifts for their friendship to be valid. And he says, I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. So listen to that. That's pretty impressive. Paul's saying, my circumstances do not dictate my contentment. He said, my contentment is not based on what happens in my life. It's actually based on something deeper, something higher. And notice that he begins by saying, I have learned to be content in all circumstances. I've learned. So Paul, he wasn't born being a content person. He he wasn't naturally uh, leaning towards contentment. It was something something that he had to learn. That's a good lesson for us all to remember that some you know contentment is something that we can learn, we can practice. We have to make an effort with it. It's not always going to happen naturally on its own. You're not going to wake up tomorrow and suddenly be like, hey, I'm really content. It just popped out of nowhere. Now it's something you have to learn. So how did Paul, how did he come to this place of being content in all circumstances? Well, the answer is in verse 13 where he says, and this is a very famous verse of scripture. He says, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. I'm sure many of us are familiar with that. Some other translations say, I can do all things through Christ that strengthen me. Now, this is actually a really clever, brilliant move by Paul. Because actually what he's doing when he says that, he's contradicting the conventional wisdom of the time he lived in. So what do I mean by that? Well, in Paul's time, Remember, this is sort of first century A.D. There was a very popular Greek philosophy called Stoicism. Stoicism. And one of the highest values and virtues of Stoicism was the ability to to remain detached from outward uh, circumstances, to not let anything faze you, not let anything bother you. And this idea that you can deal with it on your own. You've got the resources within yourself to meet and deal with any situation or problem in life. And the idea was that it was greatly admired to be self-sufficient. All right, it was one of the highest virtues of Stoicism, self-sufficient. I don't need anybody. I can do it on my own. Thank you. No, no, I'm fine. I got it. And interestingly, the word Paul uses for content, contentment in the Greek language he was writing in, it actually means self-sufficiency. So he's playing with Stoicism philosophy here. And Stoicism, it's where we get the word Stoic from, right? You ever ever describe somebody as Stoic? How are they? Ooh, talk about Stoic. And when we describe somebody as Stoic, we think of somebody who's kind of stone-faced, right? Probably make a great poker player. But they don't let anything affect them. You can't read any of their emotions on their face. They're they're called Stoic. You know, in England, us Brits, we're, we're fond of the term stiff upper lip. I've got to keep a stiff upper lip, man. Don't let any emotion show. You know, recently I was talking with somebody who attended a funeral of, of somebody I kind of sort of secondhand knew who tragically she'd lost her, her son unexpectedly. The son was only in his, his 20s. And my friend had gone to the funeral and I asked after, how did it go? And his mom had delivered a uh, a eulogy. And she said, oh, she was, she was just amazing. Unbelievable, fantastic. She delivered an amazing eulogy and she just, she never lost it for a moment. We, we think that's a good thing, don't we? We think it's great to keep it together. Don't fall apart. And it's funny, but in modern day society, we, we, we still embrace this philosophy of stoicism, whether we realize it or not. We admire self-sufficiency. We like to call it being independent, don't we? But Paul, he brilliantly, he turns this whole philosophy on its head by saying, I can do everything through him who gives me strength. So Paul is saying, he's basically saying, I am not self-sufficient. What he's not saying is, I can do everything through my own self-sufficiency. Is that what he says? No. He says, I can do all things through him, through Jesus Christ. Paul's saying that is where his sufficiency and contentment comes. So you see, as followers of Jesus Christ, we're actually we're not called to be these independent machines. We're actually called to be totally dependent on Jesus. But there's such a pressure, isn't there, in society today to have it all together. Don't break down, don't let it out. Don't let people see the cracks. And I think ultimately it's because we're uncomfortable going there. When somebody breaks down, we're uncomfortable. When you see a grown man weeping, you become uncomfortable. You know, back in in 2005, so 13 years ago, I lost my mom. And I agreed, I agreed to do a reading at the funeral. I was a little apprehensive, but I, I, I decided, no, I want to do this. I want to honor my mom by doing one of the readings. And I was, it was a reading from Second Timothy, the second letter to Timothy from chapter 4. And as I got to the words that read, For I am being poured out like a drink offering, and the time has come for my departure. My voice faltered and I felt, I felt the tears start to well up in my eyes and then that frog you know that comes in your throat when you're overwhelmed with emotion and, and it starts to choke the words, that all came over me and I was stood in front of a, probably two, three hundred people and I really struggled to, to finish that reading. Because I was I was overwhelmed with the emotion of thinking of the fact that my mum was being poured out like a drink offering and that the time of her departure had come. And as I struggled to get through that reading, I realised that I was feeling the pressure of you gotta keep it together. This is what people expect of you. And the tears began to flow. I started weeping in front of everybody as I tried to finish the reading. And I realized in that moment that I had no self-sufficiency of my own. I had no power of my own. The only thing that was holding me up as I read was him. The only thing that helped me get through that reading, even though my brother and my sister had rushed to my side as I started breaking down, the only thing that truly kept me together was him, was Jesus. And I got through the reading. And I went and sat back down. But it was a humbling moment for me as I realized it's only through him that I could get through this. So as we continue through the rest of this passage, verses 14 to 18, Paul's, he's thanking the Philippian church for sticking with him and supporting him. When no one else did. And it reminded me that, you know, Paul was a minister of the gospel. Paul was, he was out there trying to share the good news of Jesus Christ and to start and plant new churches. And it really made me realize that, you know, he was completely dependent on donations and what people gave him. And it reminded me that, you know, uh, pastors such as myself, We're essentially, in one sense, we're at the mercy of the church we serve because it's only through your generous, your gifts and your donations that I'm allowed to do what I can do. And so I want to say thank you. I want to say thank you to all of you who are part of this church, even you who are visiting for your support and for the way that you bless me and my family and allow me to do what I can do. So Paul, he's thanking the church, saying thank you for these gifts. But he knows that he can't materialistically give them anything back. He's in prison. And this is why he says in verse 18, And my God will meet all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. So he says, My God, look what I can give you. This verse is it's often misinterpreted, and it's really the prosperity gospel preachers. They love this verse, you know. God will meet all your needs according to his glorious riches. So these prosperity preachers, they love to camp on this verse, right? They love to be, folks, you just give your money to the church and the Lord's going to bless you. Give him your last cent and he'll multiply it. He's going to bless you. I just know, I'm feeling, I know he's going to bless you. Just give me all your money. Remember, the more you give, the more blessed you are. And they will use this verse. Remember, what does God say? He's going to meet all your needs. Well, it's misinterpreted, isn't it? Because we have to look at this verse in light of verse 13 and what Paul means by needs. So when he says, um, God will meet all your needs, what Paul means is that God will supply you with the greatest need of all. What is that? It's the ability to face all circumstances through the one who gives you strength. That's what Paul's talking about. He's not saying you're just going to be blessed and nothing bad's going to happen in your life. And everything's going to be hunky-dory. No, he's saying when those circumstances come up, circumstances in your life that seem impossible, insurmountable, God will be the one to give you strength in those times won't come from your self-sufficiency. It'll come from his all-sufficiency. So as we wrap up here, I want you to remember a few things. That contentment is something we can learn. And I want to leave you with three practices, three points that I think will help you get there. So number one, get in the habit of giving thanks. We just came off Thanksgiving weekend, didn't we? Get in the habit of giving thanks or rejoice, as Paul says. Naming and claiming things you can be thankful and grateful for is a powerful antidote to discontentment. If you're you're feeling grumpy and sorry for yourself, start thinking about what you can be thankful for. And it doesn't matter what circumstances in your life, there are always things you can be thankful for. Number two, stop trying to be so independent all the time. Seriously, stop it. No, no, you know, what? what's the classic New England phrase? I'm all set. Hey, can I help you? I'm all set. Stop it. You're not all set. Learn to be dependent on each other. Learn to be dependent on Jesus and learn to be dependent on the church. If you're part of a church, use the church to help you. You can bless the church and the church can bless you. But one of those self Telltale signs of a, a spirit of independence, of self-sufficiency is this whole idea of like, I'm all set. No, 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 I'm fine. I you, know, I, I'm, I'm good. And what, you know, what do we try to do? We try to mask it with false humility. Oh, no, well, no, I, I, don't, I don't want to be a trouble to anyone. I don't want to bother anybody. I, no, I, I, I'm fine. I, I can handle it. No. You know what that is? That's a mask for ultimately you don't want to be seen as weak and needy. But you know what? We're all weak and needy. None of us are as strong as we think we are. And Jesus is saying it's only through him that you can really do anything. So one, get in the habit of thanks, giving thanks. Two, stop trying to be so independent all the time. Give yourself a break. Get some help. And number three, understand that true, lasting, eternal contentment, it's not found in anything you can find in this world. It's only found through Jesus. And 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 here's the thing. I know what you're thinking. Well, I, I know a number of people who don't believe in God and they're some of the most content people I've ever met. I know my brother's one of them. My brother's done very well for himself, financially in a great place. He's got a great wife, two great kids, just moved into a nice house, good job. He's looking to retire at 50. He's one of the most content people I know. And yet he's an atheist, he doesn't believe in God. There's just one small issue with all that. There's one one little kink in the armor there. His contentment is conditional. It's conditional on his circumstances. What if something happened to his finances? Or God forbid something happened to somebody in his family or his job. Would he still be content? The answer is probably no, because his contentment is based on the wrong thing. It's on things that don't last. So remember, your circumstances change, but God doesn't. Base your contentment on Him, and you'll find true contentment. Let's pray. Father, we thank You that You, You're the source of true contentment. Help us to realize and understand that truth this morning, Lord, that it's... It's not based on our financial circumstances or our family life or our friendships, but ultimately we place our hope and contentment in you. And I pray for us all this morning that if if there are people who are in a place of feeling discontentment, if they're disgruntled, I pray, Lord, you just speak to their hearts about the things they can be thankful for and the fact that you love them, that you are their friend. And that your friendship with them is not based on what you can do for them. It's based on the fact that you just love them for who they are because you created them. So I ask, Lord, that you would bless us today and help us to learn contentment. Through Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.